Uh, for those of you that I've not yet met, my name is Prentice, and I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, I just want to welcome you, uh, especially those that are here uh, and those that are watching online. Uh, we're so glad that you entered into this space with us as we continue our series on Mark uh, in our season of Lent. Lent meaning spring, meaning newness. Uh, which is upcoming, which is what Easter represents, and it's really just preparing our hearts and our lives uh, for what the life, death, and resurrection means to us and how that changes uh, our entire lives. And so this morning we will continue uh, in Mark chapter 8, and we'll get to the text in just a moment, but I, I know that Hannah uh, just said so, there's so much going on, especially during this holy season of the church but I really do want to emphasize the Seder dinner that's coming up April 10th uh, here at 6 p.m. It's going to be led by a friend of mine. His name is Rabbi Matt from uh, a Messianic uh, Jewish synagogue in North Seattle called Shalom Seattle. Uh, so Rabbi Matt will be leading us through uh, the, <clears throat> the elements of the Seder plate along with an actual dinner. It will be a catered dinner uh, and it'll just be an amazing time. It's, it's for the entire family, uh, so it's very interactive in the way that we approach the Seder plate, and so would love, would love, love to see you there. In addition to that, uh, we don't do this often, but I just want to thank you for your generosity uh, in, on behalf of all of Bethany, not just West Seattle, but all uh, six locations as we've been able to do uh, a lot of things, and with all that's happening in our world today, just recently we gave $10,000 to uh, World Relief in their efforts to serve uh, the refugees of Ukraine. Uh, obviously, we all know what's happening in Ukraine with the war, uh, and so uh, because of your generosity, we're able to do that. Uh, we also just want to let you know and slash remind you that every year, throughout the year, we give approximately an additional $10,000 uh, to what is called the Real Rent Duwamish. And that's something that we feel, particularly at West Seattle, feel passionate about because uh, we are near the Duwamish, near the Longhouse. Uh, and it's this idea that we understand that much of Seattle, particularly here, uh, we acknowledge that we are on borrowed land. And so... Uh, we contribute monthly to their real rent Duwamish uh, program. And so, again, that's all that to say thank you for your generosity uh, and the ways that you serve, not just in the walls of the church, though that is much appreciated, uh, but also on the outside walls of our church as well. So, with that said, let me pray and we'll get started. God, thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can dig into... Uh, the gospel of Mark, and to just learn more about you and who you are. God, remind us uh, each and every morning uh, of who you are, what you did on the cross, how you resurrected on the third day, and because of that, we can have new life. And not just this place where we go after we die, though that is true, but we can experience a fullness, a joy, a fulfillment here, right now, right this second, knowing that you are God of our lives. So we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your work on the cross. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Uh, so 
in my room at home slash my office now, you know, during this pandemic where we're working from home, uh, I have this board. Uh, and on the board, <clears throat> it has this piece of paper that kind of guides me, and it's kind of his little secret, that, that guides me in my sermon prep. And so uh, it, it gives me like a template that I work off of every week. And on this template, uh, it, it says this, it's to remind people as I preach or prepare this sermon, here are the things that I need to accomplish in every sermon. Whether I do that uh, successfully or not, you be the judge. But it, but it says, teach people how to think, teach people what, uh, what to feel, and teach people what to do. So think, feel, do. It, it, the, the piece of paper, the reminder says, that as long as I can do that in every sermon, to teach people how to think, feel, and do, uh, then God's word was proclaimed. And Maria, my wife, comes in, and maybe she sees that for the first time, and she reads it, and she looks at it with kind of curious eyes, and, and I was like, what's, what's so interesting about it? And she repeats what's on the board to me. She says, teach people what to think, teach people what to feel, teach people what to do. She says, you, are you a cult leader? You sound like a cult leader. Are you trying to like brainwash people? Like, what is this? And, and, and I would say that this whole idea of think, feel, and do does not come necessarily from the preaching world, but this is the art of communication in general. And, and so, uh, but with that said, part of how I start every sermon, think, feel, and do, uh, and, and this is really every pastor. So if you've, if you've listened to sermons, you probably have noticed this, that before we get there, this is another secret, that there's this hook, okay? Usually this hook to grab your attention uh, has to include either a story, so oftentimes it's a, it's a time of my own confession as a child or even just what I did wrong yesterday or, or whatever it is. It starts off with a story or, or maybe a joke, but I'm not that funny, so I don't really try to do jokes. Uh, or it's a question, a profound question uh, for the congregation to think about and to ponder and, and to listen closely then what the answer to that question might be throughout the sermon. So there's that hook as we go into the sermon. And now as I was thinking about what that hook might be this morning, a story or a question or a joke, you know, I decided to leave all of that out because in the text that we are about to read together or that I will read for you, lies a question already. In this passage already has this question that I believe is the most important question ever asked. And I'm not being dramatic about this. And not only that, I believe it's a question, an important question that we need to ask ourselves because it's so important every single day of our lives. Now, just a quick bit of context of, of how I'm going to get to this question is this. Mark, the, the Gospel of Mark, is a very brief book, though many scholars believe it's the very first gospel written out of the four, it is very brief. Mark likes to get to the point. He likes to be concise as he describes his eyewitness account of the person of Jesus and his life, again, death and resurrection. And so between the beginning of Mark to where we are at now in chapter 8, uh, Jesus is moving from, from Galilee, uh, and he's on his way with his friends to Jerusalem to experience 
the Passion Week, the, the, the Holy Week, his life, death, and resurrection. Now, before they all walk, which is about 10 to 12 miles to Jerusalem, to south from Galilee, they take a couple detours, and one of the detours is instead of going someplace on the way, they actually head about 10 miles northeast before they head back down south to Jerusalem to a town or called Caesarea Philippi. <clears throat> and they go there, and this is where Mark describes the most important question that he ever asks, that Jesus ever asks, that we'll ever ask to ourselves. In verse 29, Jesus asks his disciples, after seeing the healing, the teaching, now, mind you, that on their way to, Gal- to Galilee in their pit stop to Caesarea Philippi, he was healing people, he was preaching to people, he was proclaiming to people uh, the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus wasn't absolutely clear, and this was intentional, that he was fully human and fully divine. He was the God. He was fully human. Now, Jesus wasn't asked clear, but he was giving hints by these healings, by these works, by these teachings. And finally, they get to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks his disciples, and this is the question, so what about you? This is the question. So what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, I've given you clues, everybody, all the disciples, and even people around, by, by, by healing people, by teaching people, by talking about the kingdom of God. Now, as I've dropped all these hints, let me ask you, friends, including Peter and his other disciples, now, everyone might have an opinion about me from dropping all these hints, but let me just get down to the center of it. Who do you think I am. Who do you say I am? And this isn't just a question for his disciples, but this is a question for us today. Who do we say Jesus is in our lives? Who is Jesus? Now, whether you know this or not, to some degree, we all have an answer to this question. And I, and I would submit to you, whether you identify as being a Christian or not, we all have a response to the question, who do you say I am? And although C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite writers, didn't invent the term uh, trilemma, he popularized it. And the, and the trilemma is this. It's the idea that every person, again, has a belief about Jesus, and it boils down to these three trilemma, these three things. You either believe Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or Lord. This is the trilemma that C.S. Lewis and other scholars and historians talk about, that everybody has an answer to the question of who Jesus is. And the answer usually boils down to this trilemma, these three elements. You either believe that Jesus is a liar, that when Jesus proclaims to be God, proclaims to be the one who heals, who delivers, who through Jesus can get to God to experience fullness of life, even today and tomorrow and even after we die. Either you believe that's all a lie, or you believe Jesus is a lunatic, he's crazy somehow, or you actually believe that he is Lord, someone that is speaking the truth, the Messiah, 
God. And now, I, I, I would confess, maybe you're, you're already thinking that this is probably a little bit overly simplistic. But again, don't miss the point. The point is, everybody has a belief about Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in his claims, or, the, or even the claims that we speak of Jesus to be, or, or perhaps you're here or you're watching, and you don't even believe Jesus exists. In, in either case, that in and of itself is a belief about Jesus already. Now, for many of us, if you're here and you're watching and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, myself included, clearly we don't consider Jesus as a liar nor a lunatic, but we do consider Jesus as Lord, someone who we follow. Remember this Greek word, kyrios, Lord, the one we follow, the one we give our lives to. That Peter was right when he proclaimed that, well, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says, I believe that you are the Messiah. And like Peter, we would proclaim and declare the same thing. But I would add a little bit of a nuance to this. And I would add this thought, that, uh, or this question. What if these three categories, although simplistically put, liar, lunatic, Lord, uh, because there's probably more categories than these three. What if these categories that we're talking about... They aren't so static, but they're much more dynamic. In other words, what if liar, lunatic, Lord, it moves around a little bit more fluidly than we think? For example, can't a person who identifies as, as being a Christian, or sorry, can't a person who does not identify as being a Christian still have moments of questions about God. Does, does God actually exist? Or maybe, better put, curiosity. Well, maybe God does exist. Can't a person who, who, who claims to, to be not a father of Jesus still have moments of curiosity, still have glimpses of heaven, glimpses of truth? Can't these people still experience only what God can provide? Uh, and, and I would say yes. In fact, most theologians would agree, and this is called, uh, and I won't get into this today, but general revelation, that, just, there, that God gives general revelation. Whether you believe in God or not, you still experience elements of God one way or another. And, and so there's, there's this idea of Jesus being a liar or a lunatic or Lord that moves around a little bit more fluidly than we think. And, and the other side is true. For example, can't a person who does, in fact, identify as being a Christian who believes with all their might and soul that Jesus is Lord, still have moments of doubt, still have moments of skepticism, still have moments of, God, are you actually, are you actually there? God, when your word says that you will heal, you will provide, you will be with me, that you will bring me joy, that you will wipe away those tears, and when we actually don't experience those, we have those elements of doubt, and so we move around with Essentially, what we're saying is, Jesus, I, th I think you're lying. No one would put those in those words. No one would say that out loud. But perhaps the, the way that we're thinking would resemble somebody that would say that, well, Jesus, what Jesus is saying, he, he's lying. And, and so I would argue that whether you identify as being a Christian or, or, or you do, that what C.S. Lewis talks about, liar, lunatic, or, or Lord, can move around a little bit more fluidly than we think.
And, and because personally I believe that this is possible, the question of who Jesus is should be considered in our lives literally every single day. When we have moments, especially I'm talking to you, for those of you that do identify as being a follower of Jesus like myself, because of all these lies and noise that we hear, because of our emotions and our feelings of Jesus feeling so far away, maybe there's moments where we do feel like Jesus just is not coming through. That, that yes, if I'm saying it bluntly, that I think that Jesus is lying. If you've ever experienced anything like that, like I have, then I think it is crucial for us to wake up every single day asking who Jesus is in our lives. Now, oftentimes, and, and I've done this, I love youth camps, and, and I've been a big part of Young Life, I've been a part of youth groups. Oftentimes, uh, and I've done this as a youth pastor, where we say, okay, on the last night, there's this infamous last night of every camp. And if you've ever been to a youth retreat or a youth camp, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's all fun, there's games, there's like this setup, and I think uh, churches and, and parachurch organizations do this really well. And on this last night, it's the night <coughs> where we cry. Right? It's the night that everybody cries, and, and, and you know, the speaker, and I've done this I, myself. Okay, if you, know, you want to give your life to Jesus today, then pray this prayer. Say that, you know, it's something along the line of, Jesus is, is God. God, please come into my heart. Right? And again, this is all good. And I hope we continue to do this because I think students, especially adolescents, uh, need that, that experience of saying yes to Jesus. But oftentimes the mistake that's made is that we boil it down to identifying who Jesus is in our lives just for that singular moment. But what if that question that the youth pastor raised, that the youth leader raised uh, when we were at youth camp, or maybe you've never experienced this, but the question of who is Jesus is asked even in our own hearts every single day of our lives. I bet our lives would look different. I bet this question would stand out. I, I, and I truly believe that this question, more than ever, more than ever, is important for us to ask ourselves. And here's, here's what I mean by that. In, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, it says, the, the whole passage, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am, starts off, like this. It says, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, when Jesus does this, it's very intentional. The way that Jesus works is oftentimes very subversive, uh, and it's about making people, especially his disciples, think and experience. And so that's, so, you know, I would believe that in order to give this lesson to the disciples was the very reason they took this detour instead of going straight to Jerusalem. Now, there's something that we have to understand about Caesarea Philippi in order for all this to make sense. This city was known for their pagan worship. One commentator says this, Caesarea Philippi was where gods were born and made, including the Greek gods, the Phoenician gods, gods of fertility, and the worship of Baal, which we see all over the Old Testament. Another author says this, Caesarea Philippi was like the red light district in their world, and devout Jews, like Jesus and his disciples, 
would have, would have avoided any contact with the despicable acts committed there. It was a city of people knocking on the doors of hell. Now, how about that? Now, yes, that's a bit facetious, but that gives you an idea of what Caesarea Philippi was. It was a world of multiple gods. It was a world of multiple ideologies. It was a world of multiple worldviews. It was a world where the spectrum of morality was huge. And it was in that backdrop that Jesus asks, who, okay, first of all, he asks two questions. He says, first of all, who do people say that I am? As I travel from point A to point B and on my way to point C, as, we're, as I'm healing, as I'm doing miracles, he asks his disciples, hey, friends, okay, I know you've heard the gossip. I know you, you, know, you, know, you, you talk to other people, maybe the locals. I know that you have friends of friends of friends. Let me ask you, ask my dear friends, what are they saying about me? And, and his disciples respond, uh, interestingly, they say, well, some say, in verse 28, some say to that, to that question, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Now, this is a strange response because we know, and, and they would certainly know, that John, A, John the Baptist was dead at the time. Uh, he was beheaded for his beliefs and his convictions. They know that Elijah was dead he, many, hundreds of years ago. They know that the prophets died also hundreds of years ago from this time. And so it was interesting that they would say that, or others would say that, we think you're John the Baptist or Elijah or other prophets. Now, what we believe, we don't know for sure, is that some clues indicate that there was a Jewish belief that significant and worthy saints of the faith would resurrect from the dead and come back to earth to uh, to serve and to help and to be a, a source of hope for the Jews. Now, we don't know if that's actually true, but if that's true, that makes sense as to why some would say that Jesus were the, these people. Now, what we have to understand is that this was actually kind of a, a double-edged sword. Like, this was, A, it was a compliment because the Jews only believed that those that would rise from the dead, come back to earth, were people that were worthy enough to do that, like Elijah, like the prophets of the Old Testament, like John the Baptist. So on one end, this was actually a compliment. We, we believe that, Jesus, you are as worthy as these people that we described. But on the second half of that, what, that, what they're saying is that you are incredible, you're amazing, you prepare the way of God, but you are not God. So essentially, yes, you're an amazing person, Jesus, and you remind me of all these great figures of the past, but we also acknowledge that, but we don't actually believe you're God. The thought of Jesus being the Messiah, the God, the, the one who would come to to save and give and bring everlasting life, that thought didn't even come to their mind. They just thought he was a really nice guy who did awesome things in the past. And so when Jesus, okay, he hears that, and he says, okay, well, let me ask a second question. He kind of moves on kind of quickly, and he says, okay, well, let me ask you directly, my friends, who do you say that I am? 
<laughs> and like true Peter fashion, Peter's a very emotional guy. If you, I don't know if you've done like character studies of, of these Bible figures, but Peter always jumped in and, and always spoke up, uh, whether for good or bad. I and mean, sometimes he let his emotions move first. Uh, he was kind of the uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission kind of guy. And so he jumps in like true Peter fashion, uh, and he answers, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And this was quite a statement that someone would say out loud in the midst of the physical space that they're in. Remember that they, they are in Caesarea Philippi, a world of multiple gods and ideologies and worldviews and cultic worship. In fact, the idea of monolithic worship of one god was despised. And not only that, there was, uh, Caesarea Philippi was also under Roman rule, where there was an, a Roman emperor named Caesar at the time. We believe that when Mark was writing was Nero. Although the Roman Empire <clears throat> allowed for cultic worship and worship of multiple gods, they didn't like the worship that, that the ancient Jews had of a monolithic god. And so I say all of that because it, for someone in that environment to say, I believe, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, was a radical statement in the midst of all the worldviews and all of the chaos that's happening, in the midst of the Roman emperor despising uh, the, the ancient Jews, especially those that converted into Really, we talked about the way, not necessarily Christians yet, but the way, the ones who follow Jesus. They despised that group to the point of death and persecution. And, and so I don't want us to look past what, what, what Peter said so lightly. Though he didn't have everything right about this statement, he courageously stepped up in the world and the chaos that he was in, and he says, you know what? Although the world says all these things, and although the, the, the society is teaching me and convincing me of all these lies of who the gods are in the world, I'm going to stand up, Peter says, and says, you are the Messiah, not Caesar, not the fertility gods, not the, not the Phoenician gods, not the Greek gods, not all these hundreds of gods around here. They are not gods. Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Hmm. Now, while most of us aren't living in a world where there is pagan worship of Baal or fertility gods, while we're not oppressed by the Roman Empire. We are living in a world where there are plenty of worldviews, plenty of ideologies, plenty of answers to who Jesus is. I mean, everybody has an answer to who Jesus is. Liar, lunatic, Lord. And in this, what some would say, a very secular, some would even say post-Christian society, that most people would identify as Jesus being liar or lunatic, certainly not Lord. And oftentimes, our society convinces us, though, again, not we don't have these pagan gods that we worship, but there are other gods that come into existence. Gods that promise to save us. Gods that promise to give us 
fulfillment. Just like the Old Testament and the New Testament gods of the time, like the gods of uh, Caesarea Philippi, we also have been sold a bill of lies of the gods around here, the god of money. You want to know what you value? You want to know what you hold dearly? You want to know what you worship? Maybe you don't use that word worship. Check your bank account. Where does that go into? What does that go into? There's a God of security, a God of the God of status and influence, the God of relationships. These are the gods that, again, maybe not pagan gods, but other gods in our lives. One that we hold in a pedestal, one that we believe should be the place of Jesus, especially as followers of Christ. Instead of Jesus being on that pedestal of worship, it's the God of money, it's the God of security, a God of status and influence and job and relationships. Heck, in the last couple of years, even the last week, we've seen the God of political parties and politicians that for some reason we believe that as long as I vote the right way, as long as the right person is in leadership and power, then the world is finally going to be okay. Then I'm going to finally experience fullness of life. Then I'm going to finally experience joy. And we know that no matter which way you vote, that is not true, especially without God through the person of Jesus being Lord of our lives. There is only one kingdom that we follow, and that is the kingdom of God. A few days ago, I, I, I posted on my own personal social media just, you know, this, I would say, this admiration and, and this joy uh, of, and if you've been watching the news, maybe you haven't. I'm not a politician. I don't know anything about politics. This isn't about that. But I had a joy, a sincere, deep joy and gratitude of uh, a new Supreme Judge, court, court Judge of Katanji Brown Jackson. She seems like a great addition to our su Supreme Court. And I posted a picture of her, and I posted those words, and, and I've got, and I got a lot of, let me just say, feedback uh, from my particularly Christian friends uh, through these private messages. And some of these messages, and, I, and this is verbatim, one person said, uh, that and these are my friends who I love and who I respect and adore. We just disagree on uh, on certain things. One of them says, "We are doomed." In all caps. Like really? Okay. And another person, uh, our country is in trouble. Exclamation mark. We're not going to make it. Exclamation mark. And and, and I don't get it because like you know, to me, that's another example, and it goes, it works both ways. I, I know that the far left, the far right, everyone in between, in the middle, center left, center, whatever it is, oftentimes we put all of our stock in humanity, and, and when this, these votes, they don't go the way that we believe is right, then all of a sudden we are doomed. Now, in my personal opinions, I, I do believe a lot of the rejection and the hatred and the, and the noise that uh, Judge Brown Jackson experienced was because she was a black woman. I, be, I believe that, and I believe that exposes the racism and the sexism that exists 
in the midst of our own society. And I believe that's even one of many lies that we experience in our own lives of systemic racism. That one race is better than the other. That one gender is better than the other. That one social demographic is better than the other. That, again, are lies that we experience even in our own environment. And I don't blame us for experiencing all these noise, not just that, but just take a look at our, again, uh, look, look at what's on the news. Look at our own social media accounts. Look at what's out there. When you scroll, we play this comparison game. We see lies and messages of what we need to look like, what, how we need to dress, of how much money we need to make, of what kind of relationship we need to be in. And, and, and underneath that message says, and if you're not in one of these brackets or fit into what is being exposed in, in all these posts, then something is wrong in your life. And let me just tell you right now, that is a lie. And when we do that, we're falling under the godship of what the world tells us what to believe. And, and so therefore, it is more important than ever in the midst of all these noises in our lives, though we may not be living in Caesarea Philippi in our own right, we actually do. We, we do live in a world where there's so many worldviews and ideologies and beliefs, oftentimes, especially in a post-Christian secular society that are antithetical to who Jesus is. And so because of that, I would hope and I encourage and invite, including myself, every morning that we wake up answering the question, who is Jesus? I think the reminder of who is Jesus is so pivotal in our lives because if we don't continuously remind ourselves of that, we fall into the lies of what the world offers. The God of aesthetics, the God of things, the God of relationships, the God of money, the God of upward mobility. And we have to say no every single day. That is not God. That is not who Jesus is. The real Messiah is the, through the person of Jesus. And that's the reality. A few verses down in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 36 says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their souls? There's something here that Jesus is saying about surrender, about surrender. In the world where people offer us false sense of security, a false bill of goods, lies about who should be God in your life, what will bring you fulfillment, what will bring you joy, what will bring you worthiness, in the midst of all those lies, Jesus says, no, no, no surrender to me. Surrender all those things that you hold as gods. And many of us, if we're being honest, we have, we have those. I have those. We have our own gods in our lives. And this doesn't mean stop doing the things you just are so passionate about. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean abandon your relationships. It doesn't mean abandon your hobbies. It doesn't mean don't even have a political opinion. 
But it does mean understand that none of these things will actually save you. None of these things will actually bring you the fulfillment, the joy, and the worthiness that God has for you. Therefore, every single morning, may we ask, who is Jesus in our lives? Jesus is the Messiah, the only one that brings me joy and contentment. And nothing else. Though things in the peripheral might be good, And again, I'm not saying abandon it unless it's destructive to your life or or, or hurtful to others. I'm not saying abandon it. Enjoy it. But enjoy it knowing that they're all gifts from God and that we are under the lordship of Jesus. And so as we enter into a moment of communion, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up as for this time of reflection. And I would love for us to, and I, and I have mine at my seat here, for you to grab your cup and your element. And if you didn't get one, if you can raise your hand, uh, and we will have our connection coordinator, uh, Hannah, bring you our communion elements. I end with asking you the same question. The question that Jesus asked, who do you say he is? Now, I know that if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus like me, uh, well, obviously, he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is Lord. He is Messiah. Peter, I agree with you. But the question is, do we actually live like that? Do we actually believe that. In the, in the ancient times, uh, what a disciple did was learn under a rabbi in order to be like the rabbi. And so as we follow the greatest rabbi, Jesus, are we following Jesus? Are we proclaiming Jesus as Lord in order for us to be more like Jesus? Do we have Jesus at the center of everything of who we are and what we do and what we stand for Or are there other distractions, other gods of our lives? And if that is the case, may we surrender. May we bring it to the cross of Jesus. And so I ask us, as we break out these elements, that we are reminded as we approach Easter even, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He said to his disciples, he took the bread and he says, this is my body that was broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. May we take it together as a community. Then he says, take this cup. This is my blood that was shed for you. He says, take this in remembrance of me. May we take this together as a community. May we be reminded today and forevermore that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the risen Christ. He is our God, and nothing else 
can compare. God, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for your forgiveness, your grace for the moments and the days that we just miss it. For the days that we say that, yes, you are the Messiah, but we don't live like it. We live like we have other gods, the gods of money, the gods of influence, the gods of fame, the gods of comfort, whatever it is. Forgive us for the times that we have failed. And remind us that, there are, that though there are good things in our lives, that our God, our Messiah, is you and you alone. That there, though that there are so many voices, like there was in Caesarea Philippi, here in Seattle, here on social media, here in the news, that there's so much news and voices and, and noise and, and lies that are constantly trying to convince us otherwise, may we stand firm and have strength and have courage to proclaim that you are the Messiah in our lives and nothing and nobody else. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.